0: Live in a constant state Hello, everybody. Today is Wednesday, February 13th, and we are bringing you Block Digest 156 at Block Height 562,886.
1: So what is up? Man, nothing much. Just running through all the work to be done. There's a lot of stuff that's stacked up since we uh, missed that Sunday show. But uh, yeah, it's been going good. It's a good morning. How are you doing this morning, Janine?
2: I have been trying out a new knowledge management tool that uh, our friend Nothing Much sent to me, and it's pretty awesome, because I've been looking for something that is the local storage equivalent of Evernote. And it's not as feature-packed as Evernote, but it's local, and that's really what I care about. So not paid to say that. Just an awesome app if you want to check it out. It's called Memex.
0: How much did you get paid to say that?
2: I got paid absolutely nothing, but I did stay up for like five hours last night playing around with it.
1: Nothing much has always got clued into some interesting things I'm not aware of. But new knowledge, I thought that was that group that comes up with all that fud about everything. But I think that's something else. That's uh, That's the people that keep citing, I think, for some ridiculous study. But that's totally off topic. So let's get back on topic. we got a lot to run through. What is going on today, Shinobi?
0: All righty. So uh, first thing up, I guess, is yet another confusing update on Quadriga. So the CEO's uh, widow, uh, Jennifer Robertson, has apparently been making some weird uh, legal moves uh, very recently. And pretty much did uh, two things. Uh, First, she started taking out uh, collateral mortgages on some of her properties um, that were left to her in Cotton's will, uh, which is usually something done to kind of protect yourself from uh, creditors who might go after you, although that is... uh, really kind of odd in and of itself, because unless something could be proven in relation to how those properties were acquired, that was directly connected to some kind of malfeasance or illegal activity regarding Quadriga, there's really no basis by which they could go after those properties or her. And then actually transferred ownership of two of those properties to a trust that she was involved in, which is again, something that could be used to shield herself from any creditors going after her from Quadriga as once pretty much in the case of the the mortgage um, whoever actually loaned the money for that would have priority in terms of any kind of asset seizure liquidation and in the case of transferring these things to a trust um, with more people as a beneficiary than simply herself that also creates a barrier in that any creditors seeking that trust assets would be met with the argument, well, there are other people involved in this trust besides the person that you are trying to seek uh, compensation from. And so that has to be taken into account because liquidating the trust or any of its assets would not solely be affecting the person who is the target of any actions by creditors. And so, You know, pretty much like everything with this story so far, it's really not any kind of definitive answer. I mean, this on face value could just as easily indicate that she is taking action to protect herself with knowledge of something illegal going on with regards to Quadriga, or again, it could simply be her taking actions to protect herself because of all of the speculation going on about uh, illegal activities and the the notion that uh, cotton might not actually be dead and was faking his death and so you know on face this isn't really giving us any more of a definitive uh, indication of what's actually happening there it's just kind of another weird thing going on that doesn't really give a any kind of concrete answer.
1: Yeah, I don't think uh she's uh in the wrong for doing this or anything. I mean, you wanna you got all these people who are looking for their money and uh they're kinda pointing back at you. And so taking steps to protect yourself in that kind of makes a lot of sense to me. And um I'm sure this king thing is gonna keep dragging on. I mean, uh you know how long ago was Mt. Gox <laughs> and like we see like that's still in the news a lot. I mean, um We'll see how long this thing drags out, but I'm sure this is probably a good move on her part to just try and uh, at least give herself some protection to where the court doesn't just rule that, you know, well, all this stuff's got to be seized until we come up with a, with a verdict on the situation, because that could take a while.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: All right. So I guess uh, any more input on that before we move along? You go. righty, so uh, next up is a tool uh, that Luke Desheer uh, has published in the effort to uh, convince people to lower the block size that it's not any kind of fork or anything directly pushing for that block size reduction, but it is something that could potentially incentivize it. And I'm going to first repeat the warnings that Luke himself gave. Uh, This code has not been tested as of February 6th. He has not run this a single time. And so this is something if people choose to use it, um, you know, take that into account, but Pretty much the idea behind it is bumping a protocol version number and using this to introduce pretty much a dummy weight inside the witness data. That's just a bunch of null bytes. And pretty much what this would do is artificially increase the weight of a transaction. And people willing to pay the higher fees for this could pretty much create an approximation of less block space by taking up more with their transactions and attempt to kind of give a gauge of support for this reduction and potentially give miners an incentive to lower it themselves if they wind up processing blocks based on the the, the fees that this could create that are, for all intents and purposes, smaller anyway. And so what this does is it allows you to insert Uh, this pretty much fake weight into the witness transaction. And then when calculating the transaction ID, instead of just using the inputs and outputs, it actually hashes this uh, series of null bytes as well to arrive at the transaction ID. And this allows um, pretty much things to be re-serialized for old nodes by when the witness data is dumped Creating an extra op return output on the transaction sent to old nodes with those null bytes So that they're able to arrive at the correct transaction ID for the transaction and so Pretty much this is a totally opt-in Construction that doesn't require any fork and this is kind of him throwing something out there to see and give you know, the overall ecosystem, a way to show support for decreasing the block size and a way to actually, to some degree, gauge that support. And, you know, again, I want to reiterate, like I said, that he hasn't actually tested this. So be cautious if using something like this and absolutely do not put keys involving any more money than you plan on actually spending with it into the software, but yeah. Uh, This, this has kind of blown up into a huge issue lately that there is a lot of division over. And it's kind of disappointing to me as somebody who actually wants to see the block size reduced.
1: I'm with you on that. I just, uh, I kind of understand the contention. It's like everybody's saying, well, we just raised it. Like, you know, what are are we doing this for? It's like Lightning Network is just getting all ready to good to go. Like, uh, is it okay to do this? Can it really handle this? I mean, and I agree, like, uh, you know, we do need a fee market, and that fee market is, you know, supposed to drive the volume onto the Lightning Network. I think that uh, that's, like, the goal in the long run. But, um, I mean, we were discussing in the mumble. It's like uh, where, like, uh, there's a lot in there where, you know, this could be done, but I mean, like, uh, like we're saying, I mean, it's not going to grab that much consensus. Like this is a good way to sort of just show what percentage of the network thinks that this is an important part of the roadmap that we keep it as decentralized as possible. And, um, you know, I'm kind of on that same page of like, let's keep it, you know, making sure that it's as decentralized as possible. It's easy to spin up a node and, you know, start participating with the network, but it's, uh, It certainly doesn't seem like such a rush right now and it feels like there's some sweet spot in between we got to find, but I I don't know. That's just my opinion.
0: Well, I mean, the IBD is a big issue and if you look at Luke's figures and those hold true for users on the the low end of service and infrastructure, like the IBD is going to keep getting harder until the late 2020s and it's not going to come down with the rate of, You know, bandwidth increases and just overall uh, tech improvements until the late 2040s, if the current projections in the low end hold true. And so, like, ultimately, this is going to be locking people out of actually using Bitcoin in, honestly, places where they most need it. And leaving it alone right now is ensuring that it's going to take even longer before people in those places can actually fully participate in the system.
1: Yeah, I get it. But like, yeah, it's hard to get all this consensus. And I think, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a meaty topic where, you know, I'd like to really, you know, get more people in on the discussion and see if we can't have a, an independent show just about this discussion. Some point. Hmm. All
0: right, and so I guess uh, next up, kind of tangentially uh, related to this, Russia is in the process, um, a, the government, in coordination with major internet providers in Russia, of pretty much planning an experiment to completely cut Russia off from the internet. Uh, and this is pretty much based on a proposed law uh, in, in the Russian parliament from December 2018, uh, mandating that Russian internet providers are capable of pretty much completely severing the internet connection of Russia to the rest of the world. and maintain a completely functioning and independent in, or intranet within the borders of Russia. And this is you know this this, this is probably one of the most extreme examples of the, the Balkanization of the internet as a trend that really kind of started with China constructing the Great Firewall and has just been progressively in much smaller ways in the rest of the world, uh, demonstrating things that are pushing for that. I mean, even just looking at the European union and a lot of the, the bills that they're passing right now, as far as data, uh, how that can be managed and used the way different areas are enforcing copyright schemes and pressuring giant internet service providers, And I mean, all of these things are pretty much pressures that inevitably lead to things balkanizing, to companies and services based in other parts of the world pulling out of places where these laws and policies make it difficult or more costly to provide services there. And like, this is a a big problem because if, if this general trend really continues and starts picking up steam i mean inevitably you're looking at things like what russia is planning here becoming more and more prominent around the world and for something like bitcoin that is completely dependent on being able to propagate data all across the world uh this could pose some big issues and i mean the they're supposed to be doing this test before April 1st, so this is something that we should actually be able to watch and see the the repercussions of pretty soon. But you know, ultimately, <clears throat> everything needs to be interconnected for Bitcoin to function. Or we start seeing miners partitioned in different isolated networks, forking off into totally independent networks. And if those partitions are ever removed afterwards, then... We're looking at a situation where either people will instantiate rules that make those splits permanent, or you are talking about potentially billions and billions of dollars of economic activity just being completely erased, depending on which partition actually has the longest chain, which would have disastrous consequences for people if Bitcoin actually becomes a very important widely used asset and as of right now you know really the the only thing we have to defend against this at any kind of large scale is blockstream satellite link and like don't get me wrong like that is a huge improvement to the landscape right now and an unbelievably useful service but ultimately it is still very centralized and if, if these kinds of trends pushing towards internet balkanization really pick up steam and keep going, like governments can pressure somebody to shut down a satellite. Like governments can if if they actually have influence on a place where these uplinks are set up, shut down those uplinks. So I mean like it, it is a, a very useful thing, but it's only useful when the, the, the places that can influence it decide not to be openly hostile towards Bitcoin so we need things besides that we need things that are more distributed more decentralized and less capable of just being shut down arbitrarily
1: yeah man i mean like this uh this russia internet story sounds pretty crazy i can't even imagine them trying to do that over here because i mean it would just feel like it would tank the market and markets are already pretty weak and everything and uh I mean, but I do see your point on how this story relates to the previous and how, you know, this uh, this worry about, you know, I, I guess it's like uh, just making the hardware so much more. I mean, we're getting more casa nodes. We're getting more of these uh, nodal nodes and these samurai nodes and these hardware nodes that are kind of like a uh, business model in themselves. I mean, uh, it's hard to say that what exactly is going to get people to say like, you know, This is the easiest way to decentralize things, even though the block size is low, because now people can just spin up a node, but it's still that minor technical barrier that people don't want to build their node. And so, yeah, it's hard to say. Like, uh, I mean, but it definitely is a fear. I mean, we've seen it to where, uh, you know, everybody's kind of pointing at each other in this, you know, space for good reason. So we all kind of keep each other honest. And I mean, uh, we saw it with the, round table and you know i could see it with this too and i mean it's just uh i mean it's hard to say i mean all i could say is that yeah i think decentralization is important and it is important that we get the block size a little bit lower to where the fee market is helping secure the chain and everybody's taking advantage of the lightning network all those things are important but it's hard to say like what the answer is i mean other than like we are here and we got segwit and you know that enables lightning so where's that spot that keeps the blocks full and like uh, what's the level of volume that requires that these are things that i think we still have to wait and see but i'm totally sentimental to your position i understand like uh you know it's dangerous the road that we're going on so we'll see the fees are
0: a very very tiny part of why i want smaller blocks like, it's keeping the IBD from growing too fast. I mean, ultimately, like, it is what it is now. We, we're we not getting rid of the historical chain. So it just comes down to how much can we mitigate future growth so that technology catches up faster for less developed places in the world. And, I mean, ultimately, to me, the, it just comes down to thinking long term and not just five seconds from now. And, I mean... You know, I I understand people being hesitant to push for changes like that. But I also see, in terms of people not wanting to lower the block size, just like frankly, a lot of arrogant shitheads in the developed world who just don't give a shit about less developed places in the world because they can run a node right now just fine. And so they don't care that other people can't and like that kind of attitude is exactly what is going to march us into a small group of people controlling the consensus process going forward and if that happens then bitcoin failed it's just another centrally controlled system
1: oh man yeah this is a heavy topic that we need more voices in like i think we should work towards uh... Maybe just getting a bigger discussion going on this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, next, uh, just a really quick
0: update. Um, pretty much um, there is a vulnerability in the RPC for all versions of Bitcoin Core and NOTs, um, except the most recent version of Knots. There is an untested um, patch for this. But pretty much... Um, the way the RPC service works uh, for entering commands and getting data back from a node, um, it's set to try binding to both IP6 and IP4 um, IP addresses. And so pretty much uh, this can be in, in short manipulated so that one of them fails and the other binds and somebody can use the, the version that failed to bind uh, to pretty much intercept um, you know, commands and information that the uh, RPC gives access to. And I mean, really, first off, if you are running a node on a computer that only you have access to, like your personal computer, like nobody else has a username on it, you're fine. You don't have to worry about that. This issue is really only relevant for computers with multiple accounts. So pretty much people who are running things on VPSs or servers that multiple people have access to. And it can be dealt with pretty much by guaranteeing that things uh, bind properly. And, um, you know, just in the interest of time, because we have a lot of stuff uh, to cover, uh, you just go check out Luke's uh, blog post on this in the show notes. But pretty much um, if you're running it on your personal computer and nobody else has a username on it, you're fine. If not, um, just ensure that the RPC port can only, um, your node only binds to a single RPC port. And that pretty much deals with the issue. And if, if this is relevant to you, like I said, the specifics are in Luke's uh, blog post, but that's pretty much, a, it's not really that big of a deal.
1: Very narrow surface there. And uh, yeah, it's good to see that get put out. Appreciate that. I definitely need to go through that blog post again. So yeah, like you're saying, there's a bunch going on here. So let's talk about um, another possible Constantinople bug. Like I, might have to retitle that because been discussing that this morning about this and there's been some back and forth. So I noticed Ansel tweet this story out yesterday and found it pretty funny and it captured my interest. So there's an auger contract out there that is making the bet. Will Ethereum Constantinople fork happen successfully by March 28th, 2019? Which that's been the uh, next proposed time frame for the next, for the network upgrade update. So, uh, the contract has swung wildly in the past like, 48 hours as the Ethereum dev community is becoming aware of a potential new bug found in the code. The bets that the fork will go successfully has been in the 80 to 90 percentile range. However, when the bug was exposed a couple of days ago, that range fell down to about 30% and continued to fall as low as 20% for a very short time span. Now, after the news has spread around the dev community, it looks like the initial thoughts of this being a bug are under question. And in fact, this might be the feature that will bail out frozen projects like Parity. And now the bets are back up in the 90 percentile range that the fork will be a success. And uh, I spoke with some guys in the some Ethereum devs in the in the Colorado blockchain slack this morning. They're saying really this. uh this auger contract is just like a terrible way to measure like this is really a bet to see whether or not uh the ice uh the i guess it's the ice age issuance and the way that that's all going about whether or not it's actually going to time out right so but anyway on the bug like i'm saying it's related to the function that froze all the parity funds when devops 199 made use of the kill script To self-destruct the contract. So once a contract has been killed through the script through the script, the only way in the past to recover those funds has been through a hard fork. Well, this new bug or feature, depending on how you look at it, will look to route around this problem by enabling a quote contract replaced function. And the reason this has been taken initially as a bug because it's pretty damning for the concept of raising funds and moving around value, if it's as simple as writing a quote-unquote, contract-replace contract for a bailout. Uh, anyway, Jason Carver, an Ethereum Foundation developer, has stated, you can construct, quote, you can construct a pretty innocuous contract pre-Constantinople, one that has two possible outcomes from a transaction. Contract exist, swap tokens. Two, contract self-destruct, waste some gas. Post-Constantinople, the other the options could now become Contract exists, swap tokens, contract self-destruct waste some gas, and now contract replace, in which case all the ERC-20 tokens that were pre-approved for the contract are stolen. He goes on to say, sending Ether isn't the only way to get hosed. For example, you might use ERC-20's approve on a contract, seeing that the contract has certain rules about how it will use your approved token. Self-destruct doesn't look particularly dangerous there, pre-Constantinople, because the contract can only go away. Now it can go away and come back with code that transfers all your approved tokens, close quote. uh, If all this sounds pretty complicated, you're not alone. Another Ethereum dev put out a tweet asking the community, quote, testing awareness levels here. After Constantinople, can contracts that you interact suddenly change code in place, question mark? To which he got a 76 percent resounding no so uh um, my guess being everyone knows that a highly dubious function that could kill any trust towards a contract is a bad thing i mean that was the initial vote we'll see like now that people are starting to talk about it what's going to happen alex akunov sorry if i pronounced that wrong said uh, quote if we implement state fee proposal too. As it is, it will allow resurrection of parity multi-sig library, I suspect. And then later down the article in this trust nodes, it reaches out to Afri Shodan of Parity, another mispronunciation, I'm sorry, to ask if uh, all these revelations could delay the network fork, to which he replied simply, no. At which point the publication asked whether smart contracts with self-destruct will now just be able to steal people's funds. He said, quote, I'd like to know that answer, answer too. close quote. So this article also speculates about replay protection as it relates to these functions. But I think the bigger takeaway from this revelation is that these frozen funds won't be a problem in the future. Thanks to this sort of auto bailout feature. At least that's what uh, the auger contract consensus is saying. But like I was saying, that might be a bad way to judge consensus on the parameters of the system. It's more or less just judging whether or not the, fork will go through as timed. I think they, uh, they'd they be more hesitant after knowing every fundraiser can easily exit scan with a simple function. But I'm starting to think that this whole network upgrade is more about bailing out Gavin and Parity than it is about scaling. Anyway, they might have uh, more time thanks to this Ice Age mechanic. That's it. That dropped their daily issuance from 20,000 to 13,000 ETH, and that number will fall again in a few more weeks to around 10,000 ETH also their block time should be incrementally increasing at the same time these slowdowns in the network could bring the block height fork date towards the end of march and i guess that's what the uh real contract bet is about as to whether or not this ice age issuance is going to slow down the fork to where it'll be more like the end of march instead of the end of this month and uh so i like i said i was talking to some ethereum guys in the slack before the show And it seems like everybody's kind of still digging into this to figure out what they think about it. So this will probably be a a little bit of an update here coming in the next few days from this story. But we'll just uh, we'll see how it goes. Did you guys catch any of this or think anything about Mm -hmm.
0: it? Yeah, I mean, this just seems fundamentally uh, screwy here. Like, you know, it's a self-destruct issue is one thing. And I mean ultimately like these I don't know, this just seems like a we are pointless thing to do because you can already backdoor ERC twenty contracts with root control so that you can just modify them, replace them, like so on. So I don't understand what the point of like introducing a consensus feature or a new way of doing that. Like it's you can already protect contracts with central control like this so what's the point of creating a new one
1: you got me man and like the, the thing that gets me is like doesn't it totally negate the security trade-off there where at least like uh you know if it does kill the contract you don't have to worry about those funds being stolen i mean or you know being used outside of the you know, oh wait, I,
0: I, I am brain dead. I just realized, yeah, you're you're talking about East in contracts too, not just RC <laughs> twenty tokens. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, that that is uh yeah, uh let's just uh you know, drag immutability out in the back alley, uh beat the shit out of it and piss on it. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, it certainly does take the discussion of bailouts out of their hands where it's like, okay, we don't have to bail out anymore because we don't have to hard fork for a bailout like this thing can just go through automatically. I think they're going to use the same argument with Zcash did where it's like, yeah, there's a vulnerability, but you have to be highly technical to take advantage of it. And so it's okay. We'll see that. (laughs) Yeah, this is.
0: Yeah, wow. We won't have to deal with bailouts anymore, but we uh, threw all confidence in the system out the window.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right. So that's a big meaty story, but let's keep going because, like you're saying, we got a ton of stories. This one's just a quick update—the uh, an update from the Winkleboss and Charlie Shrim lawsuit. So. Uh, from the court case between Charlie Shrim and the Winklevoss twins, we covered this story when the news broke on a lawsuit a few months ago on episode 137, Funds Are Sefu. The, uh, the lawsuit stated that the Winklevoss twins had made a purchase of around $1 million worth of Bitcoins back in 2012, to which supposedly Charlie still owed them around 5,000 Bitcoins. After Charlie made some flashy posts, they decided to take legal action and attempt to recoup these supposed lost coins. At the beginning of the suit, the judge decided to freeze Charlie's accounts and assets while the case was being litigated. And uh, Charlie's attorney, Brian Klein, had this to say at the time, quote, the lawsuit erroneously alleges that about six years ago, Charlie essentially misappropriated thousands of bitcoins. Nothing could be further from the truth. Charlie plans to vigorously defend himself and quickly clear his name, close quote. Then about a week later, Charlie got a small victory when the judge lifted the court order to freeze his accounts and assets. And in that hearing, Charlie filed for a motion to recoup his attorney fees and related costs defending the motion. Now the judge has ordered the Winklevoss twins payback, $45,000 in legal fees. Brian Klein had this to say, quote, we are glad that the judge ruled for Charlie and ordered WCF, the Winklevoss Capital Fund, to reimburse him for legal fees he incurred in overturning WCF's approximately 30 million attachment order. This is another big step towards Charlie's full vindication, close quote. The trial is now set to hear further arguments in a few months this upcoming June. It's uh, looking like the case is going in Charlie's favor, but we'll have to wait and see. As always, we'll update you on the case continues. So uh, yeah, any news on that or do you want to just go straight into the other case update?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not really much to say. You know, like I said, I've found it really hard to believe Charlie would do stuff like that. So I guess is what it is.
1: Yeah, well, we'll see. Like we're saying, the court's coming back up in June, so we'll update you then. But uh, did you have some update for us, Janine, on this uh, defense-distributed case?
2: Yeah, so we covered, the last time we really covered anything related to Defense Distributed was um, back in episodes 126, 127, and 128 in a row, because uh, that was related to complications with um, legal cases involving Cody Wilson um, and his conduct as an individual. Um, There's now a case that's uh, titled State of Texas versus Cody Wilson, um, and we haven't talked about this, as I said, since September. But if you want to know more about the particulars of the case and what he was accused of, you can um, you can go back and watch those episodes. Uh, basically, he was resigned. As a quick summary, he was resigned. He resigned from his position as founder director, um, September 25th, 2018 and then he was indicted on december 28th on charges of sexual assault and indecency around a minor which each carry a punishment of up to 20 years in prison and a ten thousand dollar fine the prosecutors were granted multiple search warrants for wilson's phones icloud data photos um also data from sugar which is the website that he used, as well as taking a DNA specimen, whatever that means. Um, In January, he was uh, was actually out of jail on a bond of $150,000 and was even allowed to travel out of the state over the holidays. And then he was scheduled to be arraigned, i.e. formally charged on February 1st, so almost two weeks ago now. And this was around the same time that the judge in the Defense Distributed versus, uh, Gray Graywall case, um, Graywall is the Attorney General of New Jersey, um, a judge basically ruled that a federal court in Texas lacked jurisdiction to decide whether a New Jersey ghost gun law was unconstitutional. Uh, For anyone who's not familiar, a ghost gun is the name that is, or the term used for a firearm that doesn't have serial numbers. And it's also applied in general to any homemade guns that haven't been registered. Uh, It basically just means an unregistered firearm. Um, On a federal level in the United States, individuals do have a lot of allowances when it comes to creating your own guns, as long as they aren't fully automatic and as far as i know well i mean it it currently at least they have a lot of allowances that's obviously being debated in these cases but as far as i know it's not um it's not legal to remove serial numbers from guns in most states uh though it is okay to own a gun without serial numbers if you created the gun in that way without serial numbers Um, but some states like New Jersey and Maryland have actually made it illegal at a state level to manufacture or own ghost guns, and Defense Distributed has been challenging this state law in particular as unconstitutional. Um, On February 5th, Defense Distributed and a bunch of other um, firearms Second Amendment organizations filed a fresh complaint against the Attorney General of the state of New Jersey, and instead of they, because previously they were trying to get the case heard in Texas. The judge um, denied that, and said they don't have jurisdiction, and so um, that was done on the basis that if they are distributing files, um, you know, as a business within the state of Texas, uh, then the related First or Second Amendment rights are infringed by restrictions in another state, and that constitutes censorship. So now they're actually trying to argue that case directly within new jersey instead of um trying to get it heard in a texas court so that's really the main updates for that stuff
1: man really wish it would stay in texas i think like you know we'd probably be better off there but um i guess like uh yeah they could try it wherever they want whenever you're you know transferring files on the internet they could pick which jurisdiction will favor them the best i suppose
0: I mean, ultimately, like, this is something important to really fight at a federal level. I mean, like, not only is this an important Second Amendment issue, but also, like, this is a huge First Amendment issue, because this is ultimately, like, very heavily intertwined with freedom of speech and the ability to actually freely distribute information. I mean, like, that's an important precedent that's going to go way beyond... And guns in the second amendment even though those aspects of it are very important in themselves too
1: yeah it seems pretty crazy that this is being tried at a state level I right, right i mean i guess uh it's got to go through the proper channels which i mean i guess it's going to be a push to a federal court When yeah it'll be a it'll be something we're covering for a while i'm sure
0: mm-hmm. all righty i uh, guess anything else to say on this one
1: no sir what's going on with this uh this new trading app i downloaded
0: so um abra uh, recently announced uh, a new feature set to declare or i mean declare to uh, allow the sale of um, stocks and etfs using bitcoin and so, to really kind of explain how this works, first I need to kind of go back and explain really a core feature of how ABRA works in general, and a, a model that was originally applied to, um, you know, fiat currencies. And honestly, this is like really the only way out there I have seen in terms of pegging a fiat value solely using cryptocurrency as the the collateral basis for it that doesn't really have a way to just completely implode on itself due to lack of liquidity. And so like what what they call this is pretty much a, a synthetic currency. And I mean this this is you know aside from cryptocurrency something that's done with traditional assets in the financial system as well. And it's it's pretty much just a mechanism to gain exposure to something without actually directly uh, owning it yourself. And so how Abra pretty much handles fiat uh, balances in their app is like, let's say you go to deposit um, like $200. Um, uh, I'm just going to use the figures in their explanation example um, into Abra. So pretty much what Abra does is immediately convert that to Bitcoin. And so let's say that, you know, this $200 gets you one whole Bitcoin that app doesn't actually directly hold that fiat. It's immediately transferred into Bitcoin and moved into a multi-signature contract. And the way that they can guarantee that that $200 is still there and accessible to you is pretty much setting up opposing hedges. And so you now have this Bitcoin that's currently worth $200. What they will do is immediately borrow one Bitcoin from a broker and sell that for $200, which they'll hold in an escrow account. And so they're pretty much longing Bitcoin and you're shorting it in a synthetic way. And what this allows them to do is like, let's say that you have that one Bitcoin that was worth $200 and it goes down in value. Well, what they can do when you want to withdraw that $200 is take the $200 they have in an escrow account and buy Bitcoin with that where they'll wind up with more than one Bitcoin now and take the difference into your account to let you sell that for fiat and pull your $200 off. And then at that point, they can simply return the, the original BTC they borrowed and your whole, you walked away with your $200, dollars Their whole because they were able to make good on the difference and return the Bitcoin they borrowed to the broker. And nobody's lost any money in the process. And on the flip side, if Bitcoin goes up in value, when you want to withdraw that $200, you get that $200 back for less than the whole Bitcoin in that um, contract. And so they take the difference buy the rest of the Bitcoin that will be less than what they borrowed. And with the difference taken from you in the contract and what they're able to buy, they can still make the broker that they borrowed it from home. So the the way this is set up, no matter whether Bitcoin goes up or down, you're always going to have access to your fiat money. And they're always going to be able to make the person they borrowed that initial Bitcoin from whole and not lose any money themselves. So it's pretty much hedging both sides. And what ABRA does to actually make this a functional business model is obviously charge fees for, air quote, moving between different currencies. Even though moving crypto to fiat, you're not actually moving anything until you go to withdraw it and pass on any fees such as bank wire transfers or credit card fees to the user. And so in this way, they're covering fees by passing them to the user from the fiat side. They're covering the interest on borrowing Bitcoin for fees the the user incurs while moving between things on their platform and generate a little profit to keep all this going, while pretty much allowing a user to constantly have access to a fiat denominated value without them ever actually having to depend on Abra giving them fiat directly in order to redeem that. And so it's it's a very well thought through model to allow crypto and fiat interactions with things. And what they're pretty much doing with this stock and ETF offering is expanding this model from just interacting with something like us dollars into stocks and, and other securities and like i honestly think that this is a huge breakthrough in terms of just being able to get traditional equity exposure and you know i've seen uh, at least one person who i got into a little bit of a twitter shit fit um, Fudding all over this and saying that Abra is going to get shut down and pointing to one broker Well, the thing is um, one broker Was pretty much shut down because they were offering this kind of product to American citizens and Abra being a business that you actually, you know, have to interact with through KYC and such can exclude this from Americans like it, it's not like a shady bucket shop like one broker where you can just 100% anonymously go interact with the service. And so it's not fundamentally the same kind of situation. But like ultimately I think this is going to be a really big thing going forward. I mean, right now, I, I don't wanna say that this is not gonna see any use but i personally would not right now use something like this because with bitcoin like there is so much more potential upside in the future just holding on to that bitcoin but in the future when bitcoin has hit that saturated point where we're not increasing exponentially in price on a regular basis when it starts like leveling off and stabilizing with greater liquidity I think that this type of product is going to be amazing because it allows people to gain exposure to other types of investments through Bitcoin without actually exposing themselves to the kind of controls or you know the, all the baggage that comes from the legacy financial system. And so when Bitcoin is more of a stable place to just leave value and gain slowly in the short term, it will still be usable to gain access to investments that could appreciate more rapidly in the long-term future and i think like this type of construct in like 10 or 20 years is going to be huge in terms of you know giving people exposure to investments like just outside of leaving your money in bitcoin and seeing a very slow appreciation over time
1: yeah man this thing was hitting some waves whenever uh people were talking about it and uh i mean i started you know we were talking about it today so i downloaded the app last night and it is like uh it's got a lot of different coins in there you know it's like 30 something cryptos and then it's like about 40 or 50 different fiats and they even have the bitwise 10 in there that you can go into and i imagine here shortly they're going to start adding these different stocks that you could get and uh i mean it's an interesting thing i mean i'm not really a trader and i don't really mess around with these uh margins and fooling around like that I, you know i've never really been on that side of the world of things and uh so i mean i'm just looking at it looks like it definitely has a bunch of good options and it brings in some competition for guys like uh robin hood i mean they've kind of been uh running the trade crypto trading game and uh so I guess it's a you know it's a good thing to see some other competition step in here and actually offer some unique things that Robinhood doesn't offer or or, or any of these guys offer. So it'll I be a uh, be good to see it get developed out.
0: I mean like that's like kind of the beauty of it. I mean like the barrier to entry to investing in things is is like it's coming down but you're still subject to those controls. Those like people actually holding of the investments and the assets with total control over them. Whereas this type of construct from Abra, like this is actually enforced through multi-sig. Like it's not something at all that they can unilaterally just seize or take away. And I mean, going down the, the future, it's very possible that this type of construct could be even improved with lightning-like models or taking advantage of like more advanced scripting as it becomes available so that it's even more distributed. It's, it's not just like it's locked here. And so we both have to come together and negotiate it. Like this could potentially be expanded in the future to have a lightning like setup where you would be able to just cash out of something with like some kind of delay or script enforcing it. And so like this, I think these types of things are going to improve, and not just stagnate in the future in terms of like sovereignty and control over your investments.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure uh, you know we'll see a lot of people taking advantage of it. And like i are saying, I'm just not something I really fiddle around with. But it's here on my phone. I might start fiddling with it, see what's going on. So, uh, let's. Uh, is there any more comment on that? We we'll go into the other investment that's going on.
0: I'm all ready for the next.
1: All right. So, yeah, on to the next. It looks like um, we've seen uh, Bitcoin trust funds and university endowment funds dipping their toes into the Bitcoin space. And now we're seeing the first investments from pension funds. Morgan Creek Digital, which is an affiliate of Morgan Creek Capital Management, has announced that they have exceeded their original target of $25 million for the new digital asset fund that they're creating. Their pitch has been that all traditional assets will eventually be represented by digital tokens while the influx of intellectual capital into digital assets will create positive returns. They also argue that cryptocurrencies are not correlated to traditional assets, giving investors unique exposures. This pitch grabbed the attention of two plans in our two pension plans in Fairfax County, Virginia. The first being the 1.43 billion dollar police officers retirement system and the second being the 3.9 billion employee retirement system for fairfax government workers these were the two lead investors that ended up raising 40 million dollars morgan creek digital will make investments towards toward crypto and blockchain startups as well as digital tokens and cryptocurrencies The firm has already made investments with some big names in the space like Coinbase and BACT. Anthony, I'm going to get this wrong, I know it. Anthony Pompliano, I think that's how you pronounce it, I'm sorry, said in a phone interview with Bloomberg that, quote, there's a belief in the institutional world that if the industry will be around for a long time, it will be very valuable. The smart money is not distracted by price, but looks at the long term trends and believes they are betting on innovation as a great way to deliver risk-mitigated returns. Close quote. Then Catherine Molnar, uh, again, I'm sorry, of the Fairfax Police Officers Pension commented, quote, blockchain technology is being applied in unique and compelling ways across multiple industries. We feel it is important to be opportunistic and are excited to participate in this emerging opportunity due to the attractive asymmetric return profile that it represents, close quote. I hope for their sake they have a good percentage of Bitcoin in that portfolio. But uh, either way, it's uh, good to see stories like these. They really bring out the uh, sentiment that while we may be in this uh, price bear market, it's what people may be thinking. We still have these uh, new highs to reach towards. And, um, you know, this is like sort of just a confirmation story about that. So what do you guys think about this?
0: Yeah, I think this is a huge, like, first step. I mean, like, this is something everybody in the space has been talking about for a few years now, is, like, these, like, different pools of, like, large amounts of capital with a huge incentive to come into this space. And, I mean, like, we've, we saw, like, late last year, like... Um, brain fart, um, endowment funds from like yeah. major universities start moving in. And now we're starting to see the first steps of pension funds. And I mean, I think with like a lot of these pension funds, that incentive might even be stronger and like, they are much more capital in, in, inside of those than things like these endowment funds. And I mean, you know, just to kind of give a little, uh, local, um, insight to how these things work like the the chicago police pension used to be um pretty heavily invested in a few gun manufacturers that returned very high percentage um rates of return and and, um dividends you know based on the the stocks that the pension fund was holding and they dumped those stocks for purely political reasons like the, the democratic government in the city just got rid of those from the pension fund simply because they didn't like the political association with the pension being involved with gun manufacturers, despite it showing a very good return for the police officers who've been paying into that pension. And like that is greatly exacerbated the huge underfunding that the pensions in the city have. And so like you've seen like the whole point of of funds like that are literally to just pay for retirement costs for the people who pay into them. And like the government here literally sold a very good returning investment specifically because political party line. And so I like very much think that that is not an uncommon thing regarding a lot of these public pension funds. And so like they're, not, not just underfunded, but they've actually fucked revenue they do have because I don't like how this looks um, on me as a politician. So I'm going to fuck all of you people who paid into this fund. And like that creates a huge incentive, to, like in the long term to really try to make up those returns that they've lost and things like bitcoin have a very high chance of doing that even with very small percentage wise investments. So, I think this is something we're going to see more and more of because like that is a huge problem that despite how long like it's been going on, like so many people just refuse to acknowledge the societal problems that is going to cause when it all comes crashing down.
1: Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense, honestly, for pensions to be invested in Bitcoin and, uh, you know, these uh, these markets in general, because, I mean, all those plans, they seem to be like uh, trying to do this slow and steady, safe route. I mean, like to where they're invested in a lot of traditional markets. So for them to be invested in some asset that, you know, um, isn't correlated. I mean, uh, you know, some people would argue about that, but I mean, for the most part, I'd say it isn't. It's just like a kind of, moving with the rest of markets, but I think that's a very beneficial thing for, you know, like you're saying, I mean, if everything hits the fan and goes down, you do not want to be all your apples in those baskets. Like you want to, yeah, sort of spread out and hedge your bets. So it makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's a big thing to see, like you're saying. I mean, we saw uh, Yale's endowment fund, And we saw, um, you know, that uh, trust fund set up in, uh, I think it was British Columbia or Quebec. And, um, you know, there's just more of these funds coming into uh, Bitcoin and uh, trying to protect their their investors. So, yeah, it's a good thing to see. All right. Mm -hmm. Uh, You want to go on to this next one that's not so good to see if you're currently invested with Wells Fargo. (laughs) So uh, we'll just run through this real quick. There was uh, a fury of Wells Fargo customers online this past week, or yeah, uh, last week, posting tweets about concerns from a lack of access, account failure, and an inability to make deposits at local ATMs. It should be noted that this frustration comes from this being the second outage Wells Fargo has seen that week. It started on Thursday morning when their website stated Quote, we are experiencing some technical difficulties, close quote, and with a tweet saying, quote, we apologize to our customers may be experiencing an issue with our online banking and mobile app. Thanks for your patience while we research this issue. If you are impacted, please check back here for updates, close quote, and business insider reached out for comment and a spokesperson said, quote, we are experiencing system issues due to a power shutdown at one of our facilities initiated after smoke was detected following routine maintenance. We are working to restore service as soon as possible, close quote. And as right now, you can uh, look at the Wells Fargo Twitter account, Ask Wells Fargo, and you'll see uh, they are still tweeting in response to upset customers who are still having issues with the system. I'd be upset too. If you uh, start reading through the tweets, it's obvious how vulnerable people are to these system outages. One person, Haley Ledbetter, says, quote, I'm stranded in a different state with no way to get gas. I was put on hold for 40 minutes and you'll have to, and you'll, and you have to say, and all you have to say is check back. I should have switched a long time ago. Close quote. Many others are saying they aren't seeing their direct deposited paychecks. Others aren't seeing their mortgages. It's a hectic time and people are upset. All of this uh, news had people on Twitter saying it's possible that this was the beginning of a bank run, which seems rather alarmist. Say the truth, the reality is that this is just another situation that exemplifies how vulnerable these data infrastructures are and just how vital these systems are to the average person. I'm hoping some of these people will start, look, start to look at the Bitcoin network as finding the solution for these problems, but odds are it will just be a small percentage that actually recognize that. It's a bit surprising to see Wells Fargo going, quote, all hands on deck. And responding to almost every tweet I'm seeing related to the issue, it feels like at least they know they can't just ignore people like they've done in the past. And uh, maybe part of that is they know that there is real competition out there for these banks. And, um, yeah, so keep those customers you got left happy, Wells Fargo. So, yeah, do you guys have any comment on that?
0: Yeah, this is clearly a deep state operation, okay. Okay. Somebody somebody crashed a plane in, in California and in LA and it's, it's all shady and then, and then and then military choppers were flying down in the street next to the Wells Fargo bank and they stole something and the, and then their systems start going all screwy, dude. This is it. This is it, dude. God Emperor Trump is killing the deep state. It's happening.
1: <laughs> it couldn't have just been a dusty fan in one of their server farms or anything.
0: All right. Obviously, I I, I was trolling there, but in all seriousness, though, I mean, this is just really fucking suspicious because, like, a data center fire—that's that doesn't make sense. Like, power supplies are really the the thing there that would cause any kind of fire, and those are isolated from the servers and set up in a way so you can deal with that. So, I mean, it's not like a fire would start and just start burning servers. And then on top of that, you know, I, I forget where the first um, server farm started having issues, but like multiple farms started going down shortly afterwards. So, I mean, it's not just an isolated incident at one like data center. Like multiple data centers were going down and becoming inaccessible, and so like it's like it, it yeah. Obviously, the people fucking screaming about the deep state fucking like, it's like shut the fuck up. But like there is something kind of weird and suspicious going on here because their excuse for what caused the service outage, it really doesn't make sense. And it kind of contradicts a lot of reports that have been floating around in terms of what's been going on with multiple, multiple data centers of theirs around and not just one. So like, it's, I mean, I like, I can't really say what the hell is going on or do more than speculate. Maybe like something in their servers were compromised. That, that, affected multiple data centers, but like, I do not think that this was just like a fire in one data center. Like that doesn't add up with what like, has been coming out lately.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, there might be something to that. I mean, uh, it's like, uh, there's definitely been some different reports about stuff going on and I mean, yeah, it, you know, always be a little suspect of the official narrative. And, uh, you know, they're saying it is just a fire and, you know, um, yeah i could just see like uh people upset for different things i'm sure there's uh yeah i mean i don't know man it's just like you know it's wells fargo to me like the biggest thing is like i hope people are looking at how easy it is to manipulate these numbers in the 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 numbers that control their life and the inability for these people to actually secure them and um you know how easy it is to just sort of uh you know, kind of run into problems and start from scratch and, you know, like what does your mortgage mean anyway, if it just goes away, you know, with a, with a, you know, we'll just say a fire or something, but um, yeah, hopefully more people will take notice of that sort of aspect of the situation and start looking for something, you know, that's a little bit more uh, robust, like a, you know, Bitcoin, I don't know.
0: <laughs> hmm You know, and speaking of people looking for uh, more robust things, Um, yeah, so not sure, I hope everybody here knows who the Proud Boys are, um, (laughs) an organization, um, out on the West Coast that has had many, many interactions with Antifa and is very active in terms of protesting and, and... you know other public activities, but Enrique Atario the, the chairman of the Proud Boys, uh, pretty much had all of his personal accounts, his personal accounts shut down by Chase, with a deadline of April 1st to remove all of his funds from the account. And this was just days after chase's payment processor division shut down services for a website he runs called 1776.shop which allows other foundations and charities to sell uh, merchandise for things and raise money for different activities Um, i think they're best known for uh, their roger stone did nothing wrong shirts but uh, he, he's also recently uh, been deplatformed by Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Airbnb, First Data, Square, Stripe, and PayPal. And I mean, this is really starting to cross a line here. Like it, it's been months now that we've been seeing these kind of deplatformings going on for, you know, things like content producers making specific content, which is a business. Like we've seen different businesses shut out of financial services, but like this is, this is this man's personal bank account. What he uses to pay his bills, what he uses to receive money that he makes. Like this is what allows him to survive in a modern society given all the things you have to pay money for. And like this in my mind is wildly differently, or wildly different than all of these platforms shutting out businesses. Like this is an individual man having his personal account shut down with no excuse given just days after one of his businesses was deplatformed from their payment process services. And the ultimate irony of this is that the, the reason like all of this shit is happening to him is him being painted as a white supremacist. The man is black and Cuban and is trying to be associated with neo-Nazis and white supremacists and literally being personally shut out from access to financial services. And like this is not going to stop. Like this is not going to just disappear. This is not going to become a non-issue. This is steamrolled in like six months from businesses to individual people who require access to these services to actually be able to survive to pay their bills to keep a roof over their head like this is why bitcoin is here to offer alternatives when shit like this starts happening and like like honestly the the importance of that cannot be understated like this is not just a tech project. This is not just some geeky obscure thing. Like this is something that is going to be absolutely necessary for people who hold opinions that those in powerful institutions do not want being held to survive.
1: Yeah, man, it's, uh, this is one of those things that, I mean, I just, yeah, I get, pretty upset about, man, not pretty upset, really upset about, because, I mean, this is, this is what the country's supposed to stand for is like freedom of speech. And, uh, you know, all these freedoms that drive like the independent person to be, you know, be able to do what they want. And I mean, like this whole deplatforming thing we've seen is bad. And I mean, uh, you know, okay, now you can't speak on these platforms that everybody goes to in mass, but this idea, of like just directly censoring somebody through their, bank account I mean that's uh because of what they're saying I mean yeah like you're saying this is what I'm in Bitcoin for and this is why I'm fighting for Bitcoin because I mean uh yeah this this is absolutely cannot stand I mean if we want to have the battle ideas and free thought and free expression and free speech I mean you can't just shut someone down for something you don't like what they're saying and it really does you know just starks the divide to where people, you know, are basically for you, with you or against you. And uh, I mean, a lot of people like myself, I mean, they're basically making me, you know, defend these guys because it's like, Hey, you know, I've seen people die for freedoms. I'm not going to just like let you trounce on freedoms of these people you don't like just because you don't like them. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really upsetting. I mean, I hope that, um, you know, this is sort of the things that we, thinking about whenever we're thinking about oh you know it's very important to keep Bitcoin decentralized because we don't need this kind of pressure anywhere in this system otherwise yeah we've uh, we failed I mean this is all about you know permissionless uh value exchange and yeah this is uh this is the exact opposite of it
0: mm-hmm. And I mean like also like you know the, this kind of shit in my mind is going to create another use for stable coins like right now, they are effectively just an arbitrage mechanism for traders. But given this kind of shit happening more and more frequently, like there, there are going to be people in the next few years in Western developed countries who require Bitcoin to actually be able to deal with things they need to deal with financially. But that volatility can be very dangerous for people. So, you know, something like Tether that allows somebody to move Bitcoin into something stable in dollar terms and move back whenever they actually need to spend or use money. And to use it like that, it doesn't require KYCing yourself, it doesn't require actually sending that to an exchange or an institution and pulling out actual dollars. You you just hold that asset to keep your value stable and move it back into something like Bitcoin when you actually need to spend money. And I mean, I like I fully expect that to be something that happens more and more frequently going forward if people in these situations start using Bitcoin, because that volatility is not something that's okay for people with families, with things that they have to deal with when that's literally their only option. Like, it, you know, it's... In some place like Venezuela, yeah, it's gonna be better because it's it's just not going down as fast as your national currency is. But some place like America where you have a strong dollar, something that isn't just free falling, like that's not the same situation. Like you're going to need to deal with that. And I think like stable coins are going to present a way to deal with that.
1: Yeah, I think stable coins definitely will find another use outside of just arbitrage. I mean, you know, talked about, yeah, it's just like a good way to bring market clarity and price and everything. But uh, yeah, anything else on this topic? Because it looks like we still got a good few chunks of stories left.
0: I guess uh, we'll just move along. So uh, the IMF has another retarded brainchild so they're still worried about near zero interest rates not really leaving any room to deal with any future financial crash. And though the way things work now, you know, it it pretty much being not workable when people have the alternative to jump to cash if they try to move into negative interest rates. I mean, I'll point back to when Japan instituted those policies they literally overnight sold out of safes all over the country like it, it, it was impossible after that policy was instituted to find a safe to keep your cash secure because everybody rushed out and bought one and pulled money out in cash to keep in a physical safe that they could secure so that's like you're, you're pretty much like dealing with a rock in a hard place. And so what the IMF is proposing is pretty much a hard fork of fiat. Um, They're proposing that countries essentially split digital money in a bank and physical cash into two separate currencies. So that they would float with an exchange rate between them and in doing so uh negative interest rates would be a possible thing because you could actually induce that against people holding money in a bank and that negative interest rates sucking money out of things skews the supply between the, the the constant supply of cash so that Like it's going down that cash is worth less versus money in a bank and kind of leaves you stuck in terms of like, it it doesn't work like it used to. Like you can't just pull all your money out in cash and that's going to stay worth the same because whenever you need to do something electronically, you're dealing with a negative interest rate. That cash as time goes on is going to get less and less of that digital money in the bank. And so they they literally want to split everything, destroy the, the usage of cash in this situation and forcibly subject people to these negative interest rates one way or another. Like you're going to either deal with it in like your bank with having your money siphoned out for leaving it stored there, or you're going to deal with it in terms of holding cash and the exchange rate buying less and less of that digital money. (laughs) And I mean, like, this is like, there there is really nothing I can think of that a government could do that would uh, push something like Bitcoin more and more, where you just completely destroy one of the primary reasons people like to interact with and deal with cash. It's the same thing as the shit in the bank except it's in my hand you're not watching what i do with it and you can't just take it away without actually physically coming and taking it
1: man yeah i didn't uh should have like read into this a little bit more i mean like that does sound like a problem i mean um you know negative interest rates and how exactly that's gonna affect my uh my direct deposit into my bank account i mean like Does that mean like it'd be good, uh, like optimal for me if this thing goes through, like uh, as soon as it uh, does go through, like try and get as much cash out as possible or is that like uh, you're supposed to be doing the opposite, get as much in your bank account?
0: That's what I mean. It, It doesn't matter. Like if you have money in your bank account, you're going to be losing money paying the bank interest for it being your bank account. And if you're holding cash, that cash is going to become worth less and less over time versus the money in your bank account so you're you're losing value either way like you there there is no way to use cash to get out of negative interest rates effectively at that point
1: yeah i could see people moving towards a, a system like bitcoin if that's the case but um you know yeah they're really just pushing everybody into a corner and trying to make them decide like are you gonna get consumed by us Uh, you know, taking over everything and censoring everyone's voice? Or are you going to move to this system that uh, doesn't really pay attention to what we're saying?
2: Yeah, I'm the type of person that I'm trying to remember what the maximum amount I've ever had in a bank account was. And I think it might be $2,000. That's probably the maximum I've ever had in a bank account for any purpose. Because basically, as soon as I get any kind of fiat in a in a bank account, I take it out almost like most of it immediately, as soon as possible. Because like, just from the beginning, I mean, when I first got a bank account, as a kid, I literally told the bank clerk, like, I don't trust you, I'm only going to give you $200, because my parents told me to, you're not getting any more money than that. And that was when I was a teenager, just be- not because I had any, I didn't even have any kind of I didn't have a political stance on banking as a system it's just that I found the idea of giving you know a bunch of strangers your money when I could just have it in my pocket or in a box in my house it's like why would I do that it doesn't make, it doesn't make sense to me why would I do that so just from very <laughs> from a very early age I just didn't understand the idea of banks and I didn't trust the idea of using a bank and then eventually I, I got, uh, I eventually learned about why that's a, a good position to have for other reasons. And I've pretty much stayed that way since. So yeah, this does not really surprise me. Um, probably they're going to try and not make it a newsworthy thing. Um, but yeah, I'm not surprised and I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because I kind of expected this would happen.
1: Yeah, that was a, uh you know, smart head on your shoulders at that early age, because for sure I was one of those where, I mean, like, and I've talked with this with my family about, you know, the problems we're in, where it's like, you know, your family teaches you and you teach your kid of like, okay, here's how you open a savings account. Here's how you use a checking account. And you never really are told this story of like the level of trust you're handing over or what the actual mechanics are behind this system that is allowing you to do this. And, And I mean, rightly so because most people would probably be horrified
2: yeah and i i should also say like it's not just paranoia i just think like my most of my experiences with using a bank card for anything other than just taking out cash from an atm tend to be pretty horrible like the first time i got a card I tried to use it that day and the transaction got blocked. I'm like, what the hell? I just got this card. And they're like, oh yeah, that happens sometimes when you get a new card. It's like, well, Jesus Christ, like, do I have to like (laughs) call you up and say, I'm about to make a transaction now, please let me have my money. Um, And then all the other times after that, when I've like tried to use it at stores and stuff, you know, just sometimes it doesn't work online. Oh my God, that's, that's a nightmare. You trying to use it for any online shopping, which I rarely do anyway, but Yeah.
1: It's a good thing you weren't with Wells Fargo this past week. (laughs) All right, let's keep going.
0: All right, so next up, um, uh, another anonymous member of the Digital Currency Committee uh, drafting regulations in India has made a few uh, comments to media. And he's pretty much saying that the biggest concern about the committee, committee right now is that if... Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are allowed to be used for payments, um, what kind of risk that would have for destabilizing the rupee in the long term. And, you know, this, I think what this really shows is that India is not just kind of fumbling along like a lot of other governments struggling to deal with Bitcoin and this ecosystem, like they are fully aware of what this is going to do in the long term. And I think like their their general history of policy towards this space, like they have been fully aware since this became a sizable issue that they decided they had to deal with. And you know, I, we've seen a lot of back and forth and statements of banning it or not banning it. And I, at this point, I don't want to speculate on what they're actually going to do. But I like it seems very clear to me that whatever they do is going to be aimed at trying to prevent the use of payments or use for payments. And I mean, like, realistically speaking, this is not a issue they're going to deal with like tomorrow, like this is something that's going to take a a long time to really have some kind of sizable effect. Like you're really going to need a very large scale of transactional volume for Bitcoin in India to really pick up before this becomes something that is going to have noticeable effects. But like it is very clear that they don't care. It's a long time off. Like they see that threat and they want to deal with it now. And so like, I just I don't really think that we're going to see India about face like like and take a West or a more Western attitude towards Bitcoin like we see in countries like the United States. I don't think that they're going to try and be friendly and give breathing room to let this integrate into their economy. I think they're going to actively try to walk that line and stop it from integrating as much as they possibly can.
1: Yeah. India has been keeping their eye on this whole thing and they definitely don't sound like they're going to, they're not ready for this. And yeah. So like you're saying, I don't really want to speculate to say that they're going to just outright ban it or anything, but the idea of maybe getting rid of it for payments or something, I, I don't know. I mean, it definitely does seem like they're just scared about what this is going to do to their economy. I mean, to me, I mean, I don't know why they they're so frightened of it unless it's just uh They're worried about their gold. I mean, I don't I have no idea why they're so afraid of it, other than like they're gonna I guess lose control. Like that's the big fear.
0: Yeah. I mean like you know, India is kind of in the same realm as like China and Russia. They have been stockpiling gold for a long time and their citizens have a very large like amount of gold in the world and have been thinking like that's where things are going. It's something that they can control still like, that they have influence over. And that goes out the window if Bitcoin just leapfrogs over gold in terms of taking that role in the economy going forward.
1: Yeah, they've definitely been playing that card for a long time. And, you know, they definitely, I imagine, that I mean, well, they've got, like, princes and kings. And, I mean, I'm sure they're pretty happy with the way the structure is and they don't want it shaken up. I mean, conservative is conservative, and they don't want it change it. So, yeah, I've got to keep moving along with these stories. have got a few left. You want to tell us about what's going on with uh, Julian Assange? Janine?
2: Yes. So, it's not really... I mean, WikiLeaks is always a related cryptocurrency Bitcoin story just because they were one of the earliest adopters. Um, but this... I just can keep continuing to update this story because it's important to me. So on February 7th, the city parliament of Geneva adopted a motion to propose that the Swiss government offer asylum to Julian Assange, who is still stuck in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. And his legal team is still trying to um, have the sealed indictment that is very much suspected to exist for several reasons in the United States uh, published. Uh, They recently filed... um, an application with, I think it's the Inter-American Court of Human Rights or Commission on Human Rights. Um, So that's currently being uh, debated over and fought over. Um, And according to Swissinfo.ch, which is a Swiss news outlet available in multiple languages, so if you want to read it in different languages, um, they say the somewhat surprising resolution was the result of an hour-long debate on Wednesday evening, last Wednesday the 6th, I believe, Um, framed in the context of providing better protection for whistleblowers. The text was proposed by a politician from the conservative right People's Party, which is a party that does not usually uh, back acts of civil disobedience, in the words of a social democrat politician. Um, Nevertheless, the proposition picked up enough support from left-wing politicians to withstand opposition from the center-right radical liberals, end quote. Uh, This is not the first time that a proposal to offer Assange asylum has come through in Switzerland. Uh, There was a parliamentarian in Bern uh, previously who tried uh, in the federal council, but that was not really pursued on the basis that he is not a defender of human rights, according to their response. Um, I mean, the documents that WikiLeaks have released have been used in human rights cases, uh, including, you know, UN stuff. And clearly a more transparent and just society is important for human rights. But what do I know? Uh, In September last year, it was reported that a transparency group had put forward multiple bills to give greater protection to both workplace and state whistleblowers, but so far they have not really gone as far as people such as I would prefer. Yes, it may surprise some people, but Switzerland is actually not a great place to be a whistleblower um, in, in you know in terms of the laws and protections that are available. So I'm not yet too excited about Geneva making this motion because one, it's not An official offer that should be clear it's a motion to propose (laughs) to have switzerland offer assange asylum and so far the effort to get switzerland at a federal level to offer asylum to assange has not gone very far and i don't exactly know what geneva as a city can really do in its own terms uh uh for offering protection keep in mind that switzerland would uh probably need to do this at the federal level in order for assange to be able to take advantage of their embassy in london if you were to use that as like you know a relocation matter or uh, maybe a like go there first and then try and leave the country somehow um but uh so the swiss embassy in london is i think two and a half kilometers away from the ecuadorian embassy so Obviously it's a lot easier to get to than Switzerland, the country, but um, awkwardly the Swiss Embassy is actually right across the street from the Swedish Embassy, which is very ironic and horrifying. Um, so that's great. Uh, and if Assange was offered asylum directly within Switzerland or even just Geneva, he would need to get there somehow get there somehow, obviously. Um, At the moment, that's fraught with even more risk than just trying to get out of the Ecuadorian embassy and go two and a half kilometers uh, to the Swiss embassy. And keep in mind that the United States... uh, very likely reached out of his jurisdiction back in July 2013 uh, that resulted in the international flight of a Bolivian president, uh, Evo Morales, being forced to land in Austria just because he had recently given an interview where he said he was open to the idea of offering asylum to Edward Snowden. Um, and this was a flight from Russia that was in European airspace when it was diverted and grounded and inspected because France and Portugal denied them mid-flight permission to access their national airspace uh, due to the Obama administration saying that allowing Snowden to land in any of their territory would seriously damage their relations with the United States. Also, in addition to the United States, you also have the UK proving day after day how hostile they are to human rights protections, uh, where they are still ignoring after three years now... um, They're ignoring a UN ruling, which not only said that Assange should be allowed to walk freely, but should be compensated for how the severity of his arbitrary detention has affected his health over the past six to seven years. Um, And it's maybe possible that Switzerland feels it's in a better position than Ecuador, um, especially being a European country. Uh, You know, it used to be that because you were in South America, that gave you a bit of a geographic buffer but maybe that's falling apart now considering ecuador is not really standing up to the united states anymore uh and many other countries but since the offer hasn't really been made yet um not really sure how this is going to turn out but if you are in switzerland especially in geneva there's an ongoing campaign right now to spread information about the motion in case there's i don't know if there would be an actual referendum or something but uh, if you have any way to make more people aware of that so that becomes a higher priority, uh, we might as well, as well, you know, do as much as possible. So feel free to take part in that if it's important to you.
1: Yeah, I think this is, should be important to everyone in the space to pay attention to what's going on with uh, Julian Assange and all these whistleblowers in general. And, I mean, even though it is just a motion to propose, I mean, like, at least that's a little bit of a light, uh, you know, on the horizon, I mean, I just haven't seen anything like that, and I mean, uh, yeah, the idea of like how exactly this is gonna go say guess still, but I mean, geez, if they're right across the street, you think they could just form like a human tunnel and let the guy just run across the street real quick to see if they if they want to drone a bunch of people in the middle of the street. I don't know it's just, it's just getting ridiculous, but I mean, like it's a good thing that at least there is some glimmers of hope there for the guy because. You can I can't even imagine just being there for the amount of time he's been there without sort of anything on the horizon. So, as small as it is, it's a it's a little victory. All right, you want to take us into this uh new coin center piece about why we should be talking about privacy. Uh, Jeanine?
2: Oh, sorry. I didn't know I was doing too narrow. Um, Yes. So Jerry Brito from Coin Center decided to publish an article on February 6th titled We Must Protect Our Ability to Transact Privacy Online, which was used um, to also publish an entire paper that's titled The Case for Electronic Cash, Why Private Peer-to-Peer Payments Are Essential to an Open Society. Arguing that cash is essential to an open society and financial privacy tools, whether implemented in Bitcoin, Monero, Zcash, or Grin, should not only be tolerated, but fostered and celebrated. That's what they said. And Jerry writes, given that typically we are being asked about Bitcoin or Ethereum, the simple answer to the question of whether they're anonymous is that no, they are not anonymous and that law enforcement routinely exploits the transparency of these blockchains in prosecutions. That answer, however, avoids addressing the implication that anonymity is bad. It's not. What is often referred to disparagingly as anonymity is really the ability of individuals to keep information about themselves private. This is an ability that can be put to both good uses and bad. It's how one uses that power that can be said to be good or bad, however, not the technology that one uses to retain one's privacy. Um, Yeah, so I completely agree with that. And it's been one of my pet peeves uh, among people who take it upon themselves to talk to law enforcement and regulators about whether Bitcoin is anonymous because whenever they're asked about whether it's anonymous, it's always with this subtext that if it's anonymous, that means it's enabling crime, or it is a crime in itself for it to be anonymous. And so, yes, it's true that Bitcoin is pseudonymous, very, very, very loosely anonymous, doesn't yet have a lot of the privacy protections, which are currently being explored on the roadmap. But obviously the goal is to make it more anonymous, not less, and what bothers me when some of these people are speaking to regulators, they don't make that second part clear, which kind of communicates like either there's some kind of appeasement strategy going on where you both know like the goal is to make it more anonymous, but you don't want to say that. And so it makes the regulator or a law enforcement person feels like, oh, well, if they're not being honest with me, that means that they're, you know, maybe they're worried about this and maybe it won't happen. Or you're communicating that you agree with them that anonymity is something we don't want. And so that's just an implication with, you know, when you're having these conversations with them, that's what it. That's what they hear when you don't address whether anonymity is, you know, a perk or a deficiency. Most of them think that it's a deficiency. And so I think in the future, if anyone does want to take it upon themselves to talk to law enforcement they should say, yes, it's not currently as anonymous as we would like. We are trying to fix that. Like you should make it clear that it's a problem that there's not enough anonymity.
1: Right on. I get really tired of people just being like, Oh, well there's, you know, you got nothing to hide. So it's fine. And like, uh, people just give over that right to privacy without even thinking that much about it at all. And then they just don't understand the level that their privacy is being invaded. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something where I I'm passionate about it and I know we all are. So yeah, just try and keep, uh, educating people that, you know, we're trying to restore the right to privacy because, uh, that's all sort of been taken from us from opting in in some of these systems. All right, uh, just in the interest of time, still, let's keep pushing along. Um, So I was invited to an early screening of Alex Winter's new documentary, Trust Machine, on Friday, this last Friday night. And to be honest, I was hesitant to see it mainly because I didn't want to get pitched the blockchain, not Bitcoin narrative again. And especially from Alex Winter, who's made some docs I've really enjoyed in the past, downloaded from 2012, covered the rise of Napster and its creators, Sean Fanning and Sean Parker and uh, facing off against the music industry, the deep web from 2015 covered the rise of Silk Road, the Bitcoin, Bitcoin in the case of Ross Ulbricht. I thought both those documentaries did a good job of being informative and entertaining, but this movie had some pretty obvious red flags from the trailer. It wouldn't be that informative and just by some of the credits. Anyway, this was put together by some local friends of mine and I was obliged to attend. It was a nice theater and they served some great beers. It was a lot of fun. Another positive was after the movie, there was going to be this Q&A panel with uh, some reps there. And so uh, we'll get more on that later. All right. So the movie starts out with Lori Love at a protest, and it doesn't really get into his story at first. It starts with the protest and talks about the power of Bitcoin. It goes into the story of Satoshi and the revolution of Nakamoto consensus. However, it took a pretty quick turn, about 20, 30 minutes in, saying blockchain was the Flux capacitor of the system, with uh, clips from Back to the Future for good humor. The crowd laughed, and then the story of Aaron Schwartz came in quick, and was it was a tearjerker. Everyone was feeling it, and uh, when they went back into the story of Lori Love, Lori is a hacker who, who in protest, who in protest of Aaron Schwartz's death, replaced the front page of the Pentagon website with a game of asteroids. In the setting of the movie, he's facing extradition to the U.S. and he's standing up to the system in his home country. Written to his credit in his talks, he never really veered from the Bitcoin narrative. He kept saying how Bitcoin was going to change the world. However, there were some executive producers and they took over at this point a couple of quick FUD points on Bitcoin energy consumption and and the network's capabilities. It was saying how we are expending the amount of energy of 177 countries consume daily all just to secure this leisure that just keeps balances it's it's not what we should be doing so that's when joe lubin comes into the film and pretty much finishes it out he goes into the ethereum global world computer pitch saying the ethereum that ethereum is the trust machine the movie is titled for cut to consensus offices in brooklyn where they are building a solar grid token then africa where unicef is putting global id on the blockchain and using that for a food program that authorizes your transactions with a retina scan at checkout. Then they go into a worldwide 911 to- network token and covers and then covers artists who have recently used ICOs to fund their albums, like that rapper we covered back in the day, Grammar. Anyway, after all that madness, it cuts back to Lori going to a British court to see if he'll have to face extradition in the United States. After a few more talks about how this will all be revolutionary, Lori wins his case and ends up not having to face extradition. The last scene of the movie being Lori and his friends in an elevator yelling at the director, Alex, they'll be celebrating not being extradited. And the lights came back on and the lady next to me was uh, looking pretty bewildered. She uh, had commented before the movie how she didn't know anything about blockchain or Bitcoin. I asked if she thought she had a better idea of how the system worked after watching the movie. She just looked at me and laughed a little while shaking her head. Now the uh, Q and A panel after the movie had some good had some uh, good friends of mine on there, and I didn't really have any intention of asking them questions about the movie or space. I really just wanted to ask the uh, Zcash rep uh, a specific question from that whole in- hidden inflation thing. I uh, I asked him. I quoted Zoku's tweet from about five hours earlier saying, quote, is my money safe? We have no evidence that the issue was exploited before it was fixed. However, even if it was, or in any case of any other such problem, this will not inflate the monetary base because of turnstiling, to which I asked the question, but if you begin to detect the, that inflated supply through this turnstile mechanic, doesn't that mean the counterfeit coins are hitting the network? And would that require a fork? his reply said that they didn't have to worry about the inflated supply hitting the network because they could just reject those pools. And, uh, I suppose they're saying, you know, basically they hard fork, or it's a timed in hard fork to phase out the old, uh, sprout transactions. And just another funny fact that that I know you won't like Janine is that your favorite security researcher, Michael Green was featured throughout the movie. It was actually pretty disappointing, but it was a fun night overall.
0: So in other words, it had really nothing to do with the technology. It was just a documentary about Lori Love and interspersed with shitcoin pumping.
2: Yeah, unfortunately. You mean Matthew Green was in it a lot?
1: He definitely popped up at least three or four times in there talking about, you know, how revolutionary these things are.
2: Uh, Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I so... I like Lori Love as a person and I, I don't know, I was j- very early on, I got the sense that this, this documentary was not going to turn out well. Um, I mean, obviously his story is really interesting and I might watch it just to see that because I've, i followed that uh, in addition to other, you know, uh, related hacking or whistleblower cases. Um... So I, I like Lori Love as a person, but I wouldn't say that I would I would uh, be interested in the rest of the subject matter and most of what you just described. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, honestly, I was kind of just doing a review to save everybody's time so they don't have to waste it. So, yeah, what's going on with these taps?
2: Uh, well, I think we should start calling them craps um centralized regulated or something because uh they don't exactly use the term dap correctly anyway it's kind of meaningless so on february 29th fluence labs which i've never heard of before this it's some kind of distributed data storage web 3.0 infrastructure thing don't really know Um, They published the results of a survey, which they conducted uh, with about 160 DApp project developers and founders, which sounds low, but they pulled it from an aggregate list of 1,600 projects. And only about 900 of them even had some way of contacting a person who could be a spokesperson for what the project did and what they used. Um, Most of them were from Ethereum. I think it was like 77%. Uh, There was also some from EOS and Tron. The most interesting results related to the nature of the infrastructure they were using. And before I list those interesting points, I want to note that uh, in the beginning of the survey, they say that they define a DAP, which should be decentralized application. That's what's short for uh, abbreviated. Uh, They merely define it as basically anything that has a smart contract as the key component. So as long as it uses some kind of smart contract, even if it's not decentralized, that's apparently a DAP. Um, That's how bastardized and worthless the term has become. Decentralization doesn't matter in this case. So you can basically call yourself a DAP if you just run on Ethereum, even if your smart contract is like, this one person owns all of the money and that's not going to change. But whatever, you're still DAP under Ethereum weird language use. Um, In part 2.3, which is about the centralized parts of the stack, they report that more than half of the respondents mentioned that they've used centralized infrastructure when developing their projects. Now, that seems actually surprisingly high to me, uh, or surprisingly low, because they're saying more than half did use centralized infrastructure. That seems a bit low. I I don't really have that much confidence that that many people who are building these things actually could completely avoid using centralized infrastructure. They probably just didn't even know they were using centralized infrastructure, but whatever. Um, Then almost 50%, they have a really nice chart showing all of this, but almost 50% use a centralized backend, 40% use a centralized database, 30% use a centralized file storage system, and about 20% for authentication, including APIs such as Facebook Connect. Yay! 20% a full one-fifth of these dApps are using Facebook Connect, or probably something close to it. Yay! That's great. (laughs) That's it. Wow.
1: Wow. Yeah, these uh, these depths and the way that they—I don't know—just the bastardization of that word decentralized really gets me. But you know, we'll we'll get into those arguments with those guys. All right, so keep going back to a popular lap, or what? Did you? Wait, have- or, right, yeah. well,
2: so one more thing. There's another. Uh, there's another chart about what kind of client they use, like what kind of DAP client it is. Um, Over, I think it's like 63, yeah, 63% use Infura. So that's great. Um, Only 40% use their own full node. That means that they're using their full, if they're like offering an app to their users, that means, you know, they're hosting all of that infrastructure themselves or they're doing it with Infura. Infura is specifically a service that hosts like Ethereum nodes, IPFS nodes and stuff like that. So 63% use Infura a lot, that's like two thirds. Only 40% use their own full node in some capacity. Uh, About 28% use some other kind of node provider and about 25% use a light client. So yeah, that's great too. Infura runs everything which is owned by Consensus, by the way, who is uh, which is basically controlled by Joseph Lubin, who is in that documentary about how great blockchains are.
1: Yeah, well, we know it's decentralized because it's all on the internet. So, uh, all right, so back to a popular lap and the DAP trying to imitate it. The uh, LN Trust chain we've discussed a couple of times now, and it's captured the interest of most everyone on Bitcoin Twitter. Well, now we have some imitators who are trying to bring that interest into the broader crypto community by attempting a stablecoin chain. Why? Well, because they say it's so cheap. That's why. Trenton Ben Epps tags Lightning Labs and says on Twitter, At Lightning, what's good? We've got cool stuff too. We are passing around a stablecoin to show how easy and cheap it is. Close quote." Well, unfortunately for you, Trent, no. It's not cool stuff. I understand this die community because they are here locally, and I've, see, I've even been to one of their events, which we talked about right before we left for, the last, for the, our last hiatus. These guys just sit around and think of ways to drive token adoption. They see the LN trust chain getting some hype and community support, and they want to imitate it. However, this isn't all just hype. This is just one part of stress testing a new system and seeing what potential possibilities are out there. I even linked an interesting an interesting project sprouted out of the uh trust chain where grubles wants to start the ln inverse chain where instead of adding sats to a transaction they are slowly bleeding out of the transaction these ideas are interesting and it's possible some use case jumps out of the experiments but now xdai I'm sorry but there isn't nothing and there's nothing inherently interesting about your stablecoin i mean stablecoins are good for allowing market clarity and price and building out federated models that take advantage of bitcoin security but it, it's not great for micropayments i wish there was a way i could convey this that information in a few sentences but, but for the most part these guys absolutely do not understand network security and some of their events are painfully obvious of that fact first and foremost are these cypherpunk speakeasies they uh that have they have cameras everywhere and as you log into their sites and to participate in these complicated clunky bar tabs there isn't really anything cyberpunk about it you uh just go in there and end up doxing yourself several times so yeah these are all just marketing tactics and we'll see how long it keeps them afloat but uh continuing on we also here, here got quick you,
0: you forgot something what rodolfo doing the uh trust chain uh relaying on chain transactions over ham
1: radio that's so cool i thought we were gonna save it for the final thought i just totally like the stuff i'm talking about it's like yeah this is kind of like showing imitators and like we're having some fun with this ln trust chain but yeah the torch passed through radio waves that's probably the coolest thing out of this whole experiment so far and uh you know i saw nick zabo uh congratulate Rodolfo on that that's awesome rodolfo like uh really that is some real innovation going on there and um you know jack uh jack uh dorsey we've been talking about this whole past couple weeks with lightning and on top of all this uh, jack made another appearance this time on stephen lavera's podcast with another special guest elizabeth stark it was a good discussion and they go through all the details of the ln trust chain and while they're why they think it's an interesting project I bring this up because there was another point of discussion that is getting the community excited, and that is lightning payments coming to the cash app. When asked about possible lightning integration, Jack said, quote, it's not an if, it's more of when. How do we make sure that we are getting the speed that we need and the efficiency, close quote. Now, there was a lot of other great conversations on there, and I'd suggest you guys give it a listen if you haven't already, but another point that came out of that discussion, I haven't seen much talked about is when Jack was asked about the possibility of lightning tip tips on Twitter. He said, quote, that's something we've been thinking about a lot, close quote, which that would be an incredible thing to see people getting tipped in lightning payments for the value they bring to discussions. Also there's just another great bit of lightning news out of Jack Dorsey. He's been making the news like crazy the past couple of weeks and, uh, you know why he's been there. I still think Rodolfo's radio transaction was probably the coolest thing of the whole element trust chain so far. Do you guys have any comment on all this stuff?
0: Yeah, just well, uh, the the uh, on-chain radio trust chain is fucking way cooler than the lightning one. But uh, as far as Jack, I mean, it's like yeah, he's just confirming what. A lot of people in the space of thoughts and square cash got involved, like, I mean, lightning being integrated into that and, you know, things like Twitter. I mean, that was. Kind of a no duh the second he invested in lightning labs, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it'll be good to see that stuff integrated into these things where we've seen lots of research and, you know, money get put into making sure that there's good UI and UX and everybody's, uh. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. We'll see how it continues to develop.
0: All right, I guess anything else before we move on to the last two stories?
1: No, we could make time. Let's see.
0: All righty. Well, uh, firstly, uh, not really any uh, specifics, just an on-screen uh, demonstration. Um, But pretty much the S15 Bitmain's newest AntMiner is remotely exploitable. And James Hilliard goes through a demonstration in a tweet in the show notes uh, showing it's possible possible to gain uh, remote access over SSH and configure the device so that the firmware is um, remotely modifiable. So, uh, yeah, uh, he, he's pretty much withholding the uh, attack code and disclosing the vulnerability until Bitmain complies with GPL licenses and actually, uh, you know, stops playing games, uh, violating license laws like that, and hiding aspects of the firmware. So, uh, for now, yeah. Uh, <laughs> These devices are exploitable and things like that uh, ASIC uh, ransomware that we discussed a few episodes ago are uh, going to exploit things like this. So let's give a round of applause for the second known remote vulnerability in Ant Miners, and move on to one of our favorite punching bags, Coinbase. Uh, the the wallets, um, the the actual uh, self-controlled wallet that Rick uh, recently covered, um, implementing Bitcoin support finally, is now rolling out a feature to back up your wallet's private keys, on Google Drive or iCloud. And now now hold on, we get we got to stop a second and give them credit because it's actually encrypted. Um, even they are that retarded, but it's encrypted with a password provided by the user. So um, I'll skip the rant about how most people uh, are completely incapable of generating secure passwords. um, And we'll just sit here and wait for this to build up and create a huge incentive to compromise these cloud services again and snatch everybody's backup and run it through a password cracker uh, with a bunch of dictionaries and get a shit ton of Bitcoin.
2: Shinobi, I don't I don't think you even need a dictionary. Just put in Coinbase, and I bet a bunch of people will have chosen Coinbase as their password.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're wrong on that. I mean, uh, for sure, this is going to be one of those things where we'll see people losing funds, but you know, I, I I don't know, the whole idea of just backing up your seed on a cloud and even though it's encrypted, it just feels like if you get enough people on that, somebody's going to start making moves to try and break that. Mm-hmm. So
0: thank you, Coinbase. You continue to amaze us with your ever-increasing stupidity. And I guess, amazingly, within the two hours, that brings us to final thoughts.
1: Wow, we did make the time. Honestly, I don't have a uh, link for final thoughts. Just really like, I want to say like, um, you know, appreciate all the discussion that's going on with the uh, block size debate. I know that uh, a lot of people are kind of shaking their heads at it going like, why are we talking about this again? But like, as Shinobi pointed out earlier on and as we've been talking about throughout a couple of stories here, like why that's important. I think uh, it's a good thing to just see this discussion happening. And I hope that we can uh, continue that discussion. And uh, just another shout out to uh, Rodolfo for doing the most awesome thing I've seen in a long time with Bitcoin. Congratulations on that radio transmission, bud.
0: All right, Janine, you got anything for us?
2: My final thought is that if you missed our last show, which was a special edition on Sunday uh, to talk about Libra Patron, check that out. And also there was a mini conference yesterday in munich called bitcoin tech days and they live stream that so if you weren't able to attend you can see that um at the munich you can find it probably at the munich bitcoin twitter account or their meetup page they have a live stream and you can see no para um bob mcalrath which i mentioned a few shows ago um good conference to check out
0: Alrighty. and i guess uh We definitely uh, did not cover uh, Craig's crazy blogs claiming to be Satoshi, because that was honestly a waste of time. But I'll take us out with this little clip from DJ Booth on what Satoshi's vision is, according to Craig Wright. So just one second to flip over my sound input and watch something funny, folks.
3: Hmm. best of doom, best of doom, best of you best of doom, best of doom, best of doom, best of doom, best best you guys ready? You ready? Fuck you. Good. Let's start this. Will you welcome to the stage? Hi, honey. I've just bought an invested in hooker coin. Mr. And bullshit and lie. Right. Suck it, Roger. Right. Don't really care at all. Hey, if you think about Kevin Bacon, will you take 10 hooker coin for your services? And guess what? Screw the network back. That quick. What the fuck? That's it. You end up with what we would call a hooker coin. My grandma gave a shit. Yay! Screw you, Roger. What the fuck bugger you? But I don't like it that much. We don't care whether you buy hooker coin. It's a real bugger involving college kids getting drunk. Um, We're a hop. We buy other hookers to a hop. Not only college kids getting drunk. To a hop. Don't worry about this. It's only your grandkitties that are going to be screwed. Hooker coin book a coin even though there's a hundred thousand people sitting on you you're a giant cluster Fuck, i'm already involved with a piss easy to wet dream i don't do uh malicious drugs myself but there's there's always alcohol i don't give a shit thank you
0: folks so that takes us out for the day toodaloo everybody <laughs> later everyone i am the issuer